into myself again But it's the only way you're ever gonna learn your life back And it's all in the past I'm dwelling on the thoughts I cannot see Good morning, welcome to NUFC Matters with me, Steve Ritt, the transfer show with Ben Jacobs. Good morning, Ben. Good morning, how are you? Very good, mate. Very good. And uh, yes, plenty to talk about, as always, on this show uh, with Newcastle United. Finally making a breakthrough in the January transfer window with the acquisition of Anthony Gordon. He's going through his medical at this moment in time. So, Ben, let's first of all find out what your opinion is on on that. What will he bring to Newcastle? Um, what do you make of the fee? And, um, you know, does it mean that potentially there could be an outgoing? Oh, we've lost your sound there, Ben. We've lost you. We've lost you, Ben. Ben, we haven't got your sound. No sound. No sound. I tell you what, Ben, I'll let you try and sort your system out and then we'll go we'll go with the adverts and we'll come back. But you're muted for some reason. That's it, I can hear you now, Ben. But you're slightly delayed. Maybe go out, come back in, and we'll... I'm not sure whether you can hear me. Can hear you now. That's good. Yeah, he's gone. We'll wait till he comes back. What we'll do is we'll play the ads. We'll come back, let Ben sort out his technical problems. A big thank you to all of our sponsors, as always. Thanks to Skips and Bins, telephone 0800 25 Email inquiries at skipsandbins.com and our website skipsandbins.com. Easy contract free and pay-as-you-go waste collection. Thanks to Garden of Healing Dispensaries, CBD hemp and cannabinoid specialists. You can find them at the gohd.com. Thanks to Mr. Vicky's sources, which are handmade in Cumbria. And you can find them at mrvickies.co.uk. If you want to make an order, give them a call on 01768 210102 or email info at mrvickies.co.uk. Thanks to Blowhole Breweries. You can get a selection of beers and uh, the cans are in the uh, design of the old Newcastle United entertainers strips. Blowholebrewery.co.uk. Thanks to Melly's Carpets and Beds. Laying our reputation, one recommendation at a time. The best quality around at the cheapest prices. Melly's Beds and Carpets.co.uk. Email sales at Melly's Beds and Carpets.co.uk or give Melly a call on 01670-632-216. And thanks to United Group Travel Limited, UK Coach Holidays in Morbeth, 01670 362 460 or mobile 07957-141-654. Graham, your driver, Beverly answering your calls and looking after you on your tour. Some great deals coming up there. Get yourself onto the website to check them out. Thanks also to Media Arts who uh, do all of our videos and help us with the technological side of things. And thanks to qtechshop.co.uk, the makers of pool tables and snooker tables in Walls End, Newcastle, and the guys who run our website, nufcmatters.com. If you want to subscribe to the channel, then hit the subscribe button below. Hit the thumb up, which is the like button, 
which does us a big favor with the algorithm, and click share. Share it to Newcastle United, Facebook groups, or Twitter accounts, or your own social media to help our community grow. And if you want to join the channel, hit the join button. And for as little as $1.99 a month, you can get some members-only videos and chances to win some fantastic prizes. We're also available as a podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and the rest. Don't forget as well that we do events through NUFC Matters. And this one is the next event coming up, Friday the 24th of February, an evening with Newcastle United legend Steve Howie. Friday the 24th of February, Tyneside Irish Centre, and tickets are available at £50 from newcastlelegends.com. If you also go on a voucher and search for the event, you can pick up a bargain on there. Don't forget, we also support the food bank on this channel, www.nufcfansfoodbank.co.uk is where you can find the Match Day Bucket. You can make a virtual donation to the Match Day Bucket 365 days of the year to keep helping the food bank in Newcastle. Don't forget, we also have an evening with Nobby Solano at Tyneside Irish Centre, 25th of March. Tickets £15. Book at nufcmatters.com. And we also have an evening with Lee Clark down at the Timeout Surf Cafe, limited to 30 tickets. Tickets on sale now direct from Timeout Surf Cafe. Uh, ben, have we got you back? Good morning. Hopefully. Ah, happy days. <laughs> disappointed by that. I think somebody said in the chat quite rightly the best way to hear me is on mute. So <laughs> when we did that show and I was silent, people were actually even more happy to have me on the show. <laughs> Great to see you, mate, anyway. And uh, as I said at the intro, Newcastle United finally made the move in the transfer market, bringing in Anthony Gordon, having his medical on Tyneside as we speak. £40 million plus add-ons, the fee. Um, and, and my question is, you know, have Newcastle got value for money? Um, will this mean that there could be an outgoing at Newcastle United? Where do you think you'll fit in? Lots of questions, but uh, Newcastle finally got their man. Well, I think the outgoing technically is Chris Wood, even though it's not a like-for-like -like replacement. But more broadly, yes, Newcastle would like to have some outgoings before the window shuts. And that's been an aim throughout the course of the window. We've discussed many times they've been better at incomings than outgoings in terms of being able to shift players and get value. And that's ultimately why they're in a position with the goalkeepers, for example, where they've got far too many. But if we look at Anthony Gordon, I think it's a long-standing target. We know that over the summer there was a bid from both Newcastle and Chelsea and the numbers ranged really Newcastle's valuation was around 35 million and Chelsea allegedly went a little bit higher not to the tune of 60 million but certainly around 45 million so what that saga shows us is that the valuation hasn't really changed and therefore it's a pretty decent bit of business from Everton's perspective the price is a lot lower than the so-called market valuation. But let's not forget that 60 million number was massively inflated and none of the suitors across the summer were ever going to pay anywhere near that. So I think Newcastle will be quite pleased with the number, not necessarily with the payment terms, because my understanding is that Everton stipulated if it was going to be a 40 million initial fee, then it had to be a lump sum payment, which is more traditionally associated with when you trigger a release clause. So that's a lot of capital up front. It doesn't make the blindest bit of difference for financial fair play because you offset the fee against the length of the contract on the books, but no business would like to make a payment of that magnitude all in one go. 
but this shows you that Newcastle were serious about Anthony Gordon. And I think what's interesting about the whole saga is just how they've changed over time because in the summer they backed off and then now they move late knowing that maybe Chelsea were lurking as the valuation dropped. And clearly Eddie Howe's been looking to bring in a creative-minded player, a dynamic and versatile player, and somebody that can chip in with goals and just generally pull defenders out of position. So the profile and the potential of Gordon is there. I think if you'd have asked me a few weeks back, and no doubt we did discuss it on the show, there was nothing really bubbling, but this is a late move off the back of Chris Wood departing and something that Eddie Howe drove in many respects. And I honestly think he'll divide the fan base because if he lives up to his potential then it will prove to be a very inspired signing. But if you look at the manner in which he left the football club and how he didn't turn up for training for three consecutive days, there's still that immaturity about him as both an individual and a footballer as well. So that's good in some senses because there's room for development, but it's bad potentially because if he doesn't work out or he doesn't start regularly, then how does he gel and fit into a very united dressing room. So there's definitely a question mark there. I don't think every member of the Newcastle fan base will be celebrating this one as marquee in the same way as Kieran Trippier, who has just extended, or Bruno Guimaraes. But this is Newcastle all over, really. They stick to their valuation. They bring in players that they think can make a difference. And nine times out of 10, since the new ownership group have come in, whether people have derided a signing like a Chris Wood or whether they've questioned a signing like a Kieran Trippier. I remember getting hammered on social media when I said from day one that that was a marquee signing and lots of people said it wasn't. And usually the Newcastle recruitment team and ownership group have been proven correct. So I think the fact that this has been a longer standing interest in Gordon going back to the summer probably goes against the notion of panic or goes against this narrative in some of the fan base that it's not a signing to be celebrated even at 40 million plus add-ons because this isn't Newcastle moving late out of any kind of urgency or panic. I think they've made a late call to come in and get it done out of opportunism after Frank Lampard got sacked for sure. So that's the twist in the narrative. But the fact that they were looking and serious in the summer means they actually still have had a lot of time to think about Gordon so my belief is the negotiations themselves were quite rushed and quite chaotic, but the actual decision that Gordon was right for Newcastle is far more measured. Yeah, I've got to be perfectly honest. I've got to agree with C. Anderson on uh, in the chat there that I think Gordon will be a really good signing for Newcastle. He's 21. He's still young enough to, to be, you know, to, to be, you know, moulded by Eddie Howe. He's a grafter. We talk about shithousery on this programme quite a bit these days because Newcastle are very good at it. Gamesmanship, game management, call it what you want. Newcastle are good at that these days. He fits that He fits that mould and fits that remit. And for me, I compared him the other night to David Speedy. He's got that kind of work, you know, work ethic, engine, um, a bit of a fiery temper at times. And I just think it's a great acquisition. And, it, 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 the question you've got to ask yourself every time, you know, as a Newcastle fan, you buy a player, is that player improving our squad? And the answer has to be yes. Yeah, yeah, he improves the squad. He adds depth. He adds long-term potential as well. That's the other key point in all of this, that you can look at Newcastle now and not really want to change the dynamic. 
But by the same time, you have to plan for the future where if Champions League football comes, it's a bigger squad. And who is going to be in the team in four years' time? And that's where buying young, but also with proven Premier League experience, is really important, I think. And it's kind of quite interesting that you compare him to a player, say, like David Speedy. Not everyone listening will remember Speedy, but he definitely has that similar type of personality, little bit impetuous, little bit cheeky, winds up players on and off the field, and that can lead to good laughs in the dressing room, but it also can give games an edge. And then it's about that controlled aggression. And I think what's interesting about Speedy is when he was at Blackburn, for example, in the second division, he was an out-and-out goal scorer. And I think he scored 20-plus goals in 35 games. And then as his career went on, and he ended up, by the way, at my club, Leicester as well, the goal scoring kind of dissipated a little bit and from Speedy's point of view he was kind of quite small and he got into very wide areas and dragged defenders out of position with Anthony Gordon he's a much more modern athlete dynamic versatile but the decision making isn't always brilliant and I think what Eddie Howe will be looking to add to his game is ultimately something similar to what's happened with Miguel Almiron different kind of profiles for sure but if you look at Almiron suddenly finding that clinical nature, what I think Newcastle will see with Gordon is, first of all, that ability to play him in more than one position, but then trying to train in him when to make the right decision, when to be selfish. And I think it's quite difficult at times when you play in Gordon's position, which is ultimately a forward but that's such a broad term these days. Forward can mean centre forward. It can mean wide forward. It can mean winger. It can mean false nine. It can even mean number 10. And as a consequence, when you're looking to add goals to your game, and that, from what I understand, is the big thing with Anthony Gordon that he really wants to become is a more regular goal scorer. And whatever position he's used in and whether that's a starter, uh, whether that is straight in or whether that's a squad player, it is those goals. And when he first kind of got Premier League game time, which was three or four seasons ago, he was playing kind of 10, 11 times in the Premier League and he wasn't scoring. And then last season, I think he added four Premier League goals to his game. And now this season, he's already got three Premier League goals in 16 games. And that is a very good number when you consider that Everton are struggling for goals and form and confidence. So the fact that he's already got three this season tells you that the development is there. And Eddie Howe will be looking to just alleviate that burden on Almiron, who may not hit the same heights in the second half of the season, on Callum Wilson, who may not always be fit, and Isaac as well, who's coming in and proving to be quite integral when he's fit as well. And then Gordon's another one. And if Newcastle can get in a position where they feel like they've got weapons all over, you don't need necessarily that one 20-plus goal scorer, which might be Almiron this season, but if it isn't, and you've got, let's say, three players in 10-plus goals come the end of the season, and a few others chipping in with four or five, then you get to a point with Newcastle's defence where you're very comfortable of winning games. And that's not just because they're keeping clean sheets. It's because if they get in an eventuality like the Manchester City game, for example, where it needs to be higher scoring, and you know that the opposition are going to be able to come back at you with goals, you still constantly got that opportunity to score. And let's be honest, if Newcastle United start scoring freely because of how good their defence has been, they're going to be absolutely unstoppable. And Gordon fits into all of that. So there's definitely a development in the game. There's definitely more of a poacher's instinct. If you look back at all the goals he's scored so far, what he does is put his head down a lot 
gets his power behind the shots, breaks into the area, and he can be very good with his feet. The movement to get the ball out of the feet and get a shot away quickly is good. But actually, if you look at him on one-on-ones, if you look at him with a bit more of the cuteness and the deafness that you need to be composed, maybe actually and ironically when you've got more time on the ball, that's the area where he can improve. And I think back to Jamie Vardy when Leicester won the Premier League in stark contrast, unfortunately, to this season. And when he went through on goal, not only did he instinctively know where the goal was, but if he had time, 99 times out of 100, he was going to bury it. Whereas with Gordon, when the instincts kick in, which is a good sign because it shows you the raw talent, he tends to score. But when he has a little bit more time, there's either overthinking or there can be poor decision making or there can be selfishness. You know, he finds himself in space, head goes down and you think, well, you're on the edge of the area. Yep, you've got space. But think about your angle. Look in your peripheral. Who's in your left? Who's in your right? And that's where being surrounded by a confident Newcastle side of quality like Wilson, like Almiron, like Bruno, like Joe Linton and so on is all going to help him. So, yeah, I expect him to fit in well. But I think that Newcastle fans might have to be a little bit patient with his development because to begin with, he could be a little bit hit and miss. Yeah, I, I, I've i got to be honest. Craig Bellamy's another good comparison. Derek Great. says as well, Gordon doesn't dilly-dally. He gets hold of the ball and bursts forward. Mark says, uh, Gordon's big, strong, rapid and can shoot with either foot. He's a defender's nightmare. Um, and yeah, agree about Bellamy, says Ian. Uh, except I think Bellamy was... Uh, didn't behave off the pitch as well as on, but he says when he played for Newcastle, I loved him. He says he got Shearer a few more years with his legs as well. And Andrew probably sums up some of the fan base's reaction. I didn't want Gordon, but now he's ours. I hope he does great. I'm more excited he's lightning. It's definitely a, a sign in that split opinion. I just find it rather bizarre that people's opinions simply come down to the fact that, you know, you had a little altercation with one of our players once while he was playing for another team and mm. on what he wears off the pitch. Uh, because he's he's quite a uh, uh, you know a fashion setter. He doesn't follow the crowd um, a bit like you. You jump at Ben, as a lot of people are saying in the <laughs> chat. But, but he's you know ju- you know you know where I'm coming from. You know, there's been some really bizarre images of him. You know, in, in some of the stuff he wears, etc. That's just him expressing himself in a different way, and you know, it's got nothing to do with his football. So I do find it really odd that that's how people judge footballers in some way, shape or form. But I'm going to move on from Anthony Gordon as he uh, uh, pounds away on the treadmill or does whatever he's doing. And um, this is probably the most question, uh, most asked question over the last six months on this show, whenever Ben's on and everybody's asking it. All right, Stephen, Ben, only one question for Ben today. What's the chances of us getting Madison by Tuesday? It's reported we've gone back in with a new offer for him. Sutty says... Any truth in the rumours of Newcastle putting a deal for Madison and that Leicester are in for Tete? Uh, could we get Madison on staggered payments? Three times 15 million, uh, said Roger. So, Madison, the, the story that's circulated around, you know, the two clubs, Newcastle and Leicester, they're both close to your heart, um, is back again. It comes when you do your detective work and you look at where it's come from. It's come from a off-the-cuff thing from Miguel Delaney yesterday on, on Twitter. Um, it's then being picked up by The Guardian. Now with a social media uh, platforms who cover football in general and, and put stories out there, and now ga- it's, it's gathering pace and momentum again. So, you know, for me, I don't know whether it's, I don't know whether it, it, it is back on, whether it's ever, ever been off. You know, I, I guess we've just got to sit and wait and see till February the 1st, Ben. Can you throw any light on it? 
Well, I can throw Leicester light on it and the position hasn't changed. So regardless of any growing interest, Leicester don't want to lose James Madison and especially not this late in the window. They are bringing in Tete, by the way, from Shakhtar Donetsk, who's relatively close, but the aim was always to strengthen in that position. So I don't think that we can read too much into that. And again, they're not necessarily like-for-like profiles because remember... Leicester had Adamola Lookman, who played on the other side, on the left, and they would have loved to have re-signed him on a permanent deal from Leipzig, but he went to Atlanta. Brendan Rodgers was extremely frustrated about that, and now Adamola Lookman at Atlanta's got 11 Serie A goals in 18 games, and Leicester are lacking goals, they're lacking a little bit of creativity, and there's also, of course, that worry that from Madison's perspective, he's coming back from a knee injury. From Vardy's perspective, he's not looking confident in front of goal. Yuri Tielemans will leave in all likelihood at the end of the season as well. So I think Leicester are just desperate to stop a bit of bleeding at the moment and hang on to what they've got because ultimately it's more valuable to keep Madison and sell in the summer, keep Tielemans and lose him for a free in the summer and stay up than it is to have an exodus in the final few days of the window and then suddenly find that you go down because of it. So Leicester don't want to sell James Madison is the first thing to say. Of course, we know that Newcastle are interested, but they had a very set valuation over the summer. And now that they've signed Anthony Gordon, that's going to be used against them because who's more valuable? I know there's a difference in terms of things like contract length and so on. And therefore, we should be reticent about only comparing two values to two players. But you can bet your bottom dollar that if it's 45 all in for Gordon with a lump sum payment of 40, then Leicester will be holding the structure of that deal and the value of that deal to account if there is to be any further negotiations with Newcastle United. So James Madison will be deemed to be far more than 45 million. I know Brendan Rodgers joked that it was a case that 45 or maybe it was 40 at the time over the summer would only get Madison's boot. So that's one factor to think about. Then you think of his form on top of that since those comments, then you think of the Gordon fee. So I think you're looking at 55 million for James Madison to even start a conversation. And my understanding remains that Newcastle are not looking at that valuation, nor do they think particularly optimistically that anything's going to move over the course of the next two days. So I wouldn't get overexcited about it. If Newcastle move, then it will go against their strategy, against their tight spending, against what we're hearing from sources in the latter part of the window. I think Newcastle are really more concerned about summer. And if they think they can get James Madison in summer and Spurs will come into the conversation then as well, then they'll wait because by doing so, they'll get value and James Madison will be able to integrate at the end of the season, knowing exactly what he's walking into. And I sort of come back to what I said before, which is mid-season Newcastle signing a Madison player. And it's the same for Hakim Ziyech, who we can talk about as well. And he's there and somewhat on the radar as well. It requires you to pay a Champions League wage. And if they pay a Champions League wage to that player, then what do they do with the rest of the squad who have got Newcastle in this position? And you'll note Trippier extending, he'll be on a Champions League wage. If he wasn't already before, he'll certainly be on a bump. You look at Bruno, who is highly likely to extend and soon. And again, he'll go up to a Champions League wage. And then if you bring in a Ziyech or a Madison, they'll be on a Champions League wage. And before you know it, all of the stringent wage structure 
and all of the penny pinching, if you like, that was deemed to be negative by Mike Ashley goes out the window. And to some extent, you have to have that freedom and ambition because this is the direction that Newcastle are traveling in. But do they do it now and then risk not making Champions League football and being saddled with a wage bill that if things don't go according to plan, come back to bite them? Or do they wait? And also remember again, Every single player in the squad on a slightly more modest package, if they've got Newcastle to Champions League football come the end of the season, is either going to get a bonus that's automatic, a bump in their wage, or is going to come back to the table and ask for it. So if every single player at the football club, and I'm not saying it will quite be this extreme, but let's just do the maths on it. If every single player who is in the Newcastle squad and has been integral this season either gets a bump or asks for a bump, and once even 10,000, then before you know it, that's 25 players, each of which have gone up by 10,000 a week because they're heading into potentially Champions League football. Then on top of that, if you factor in that there'll be some players that ask for a lot more than that, and then any new signings over the summer or now that are all asking for more than Newcastle would have paid at the beginning of the season, the wage bill goes through the roof. And over a four, five, six-year period, or however long it is, if you're stuck with those players and you don't make Champions League football, you either need a clause that says the wage goes down, which if they're sensible will be there in fairness, or your operational costs like your wage bill and any bonuses go through the roof. So to do that mid-season, and Madison, for example, I don't think would join Leicester, uh, leave Leicester and take a package that went immediately down in four months' time either. So there is that consideration. Mid-season is difficult from an operational and a financial fair play cost. And I don't think that there's too much to get excited about on the Madison front just yet, because even if Newcastle do proceed and try something late, Leicester are in all likelihood still going to say not for sale. Okay. Um, question on the screen there from Ian Russell. Uh, we've had a bid for Harrison Ashby from West Ham turned down. Do you think we'll go back in for him again this window? It seems to be one that they're uh, really keen on. Yeah, we spoke about this maybe a month ago. Um, I said at the time, and I'll say it again, that uh, this is a player that Newcastle have tracked for quite some time. And I think there's a very realistic possibility that this one gets done. The West Ham perspective when we last spoke a month ago was pretty categorical that they see him as one of the top talents in that position and they would have loved to keep him but the intimation from the 21 year old who's a right back for those that don't know is that he doesn't want to re-sign and therefore with his contract set to expire in the summer there's a real opportunity for Newcastle to move and there's a big difference between, let's say, Yuri Tielemann's contract expiring, but playing and integral and could keep Leicester up versus a youngster like this with a high ceiling of potential who's 21 now. And if he tells West Ham that he's not going to resign, despite the fact that they are desperate for him to try and resign, then you got to cash in. And that's what makes it so intriguing in the last few days of the window. So West Ham have completely changed their position now. They are open to a sale because they don't just want to lose a 21-year-old for free. Um, he's played in the Papa John's Trophy and Premier League 2 this season. And he's made, I think, a handful of appearances for the under-21 side as well. So again, you're not saying, well, hang on to you, you'll keep us up in the Premier League. You're basically saying, what's the point in keeping a player that says he won't sign in our 
under academy in our youth setup in our Premier League two squad. If come the end of the season, he's just going to walk away for a free, and that is why there is very likely to be an agreement between the clubs over the coming days. There are a few others looking at him as well, but the good news is that Spurs are still working on Pedro Porro, not a done deal, but heading in that direction. Chelsea have got Malo Gusto, who will join at the end of the season. He'll be loaned straight back to Lyon, so he's a Chelsea player as of the next few days, and then he'll be loaned back. So a few of the clubs looking for that young right-back, that future right-back, or that depth right-back, are sorted now in all likelihood. And that's good news for Newcastle. So I think that there's a very strong possibility that this one will happen. Yeah, yeah. Uh, important to remember that uh, David John Cook says, Gordon doesn't count the numbers for 25-man squad this season. So there is space for more. Uh, let's go back into the chat, Michael. Uh, good morning. He said, hey, lads, there was talk from Eddie that Wood was to be replaced, which this signing seems to be the fit, which is what Ben said earlier. You also recognise that we're light in midfield. Is there anything at all linked in that uh, position at this moment? Yeah, definitely a little bit light in midfield. And what's clear from their targets, at least, even though not all of these will come off, is that they are looking at both a central midfielder and a wide creative player. So, of course, Gordon can be deemed, broadly speaking, to be a forward replacement for Chris Wood. But as Eddie Howe has said many times, they're not like for like. But the aim when Wood left was not really to replace like for like. And I think that Gordon would have come in anyway, by the way, because Howe didn't desperately want Wood to leave to begin with because he realised that he offered something a bit different. But as it became clear that Newcastle effectively needed outgoings, Wood became surplus to requirements, providing they could line someone up. And that was where they became confident with Anthony Gordon. From Wood's perspective as well, he's gone to Nottingham Forest and he'll virtually stay there because there's a obligation to buy with a very specific clause. But my understanding is that that clause is not specific to Nottingham Forest staying up. It's actually a lot simpler to activate, which would suggest it's just based upon a series of appearances and therefore would can be considered now a permanent Nottingham Forest player in all likelihood. So therefore, how now turns his attention to, I think, still that wide type of creative player and that's where the Madison links come from, but also Hakim Ziyech, who I mentioned before, who's available on the market, challenges wages and also the challenge is the fact that it's not true that Chelsea are going to cave and make a loss on him and sell a player that was superb during the World Cup for Morocco for something like 12 to 15 million. It's going to be much closer to the mid-20s. It might even be somewhere all in to the tune of what Chelsea paid, which was about 33 million, I believe. So biggish fee and on top of that, huge wages. But one to watch between now and the end of the window. And then again, in central midfield, there's a few options. We mentioned in the last show, and I think it's been stood up by other people now, Scott McTominay, who was a name that I put out there and have done throughout the entire window, really. It's not going to be possible by the sounds of things this window. But this, again, is the balance between strengthening now versus having perhaps a bigger summer. And if they get Champions League football, there's a whole level of players 
if it's definite rather than speculative, that will suddenly be very interested in Newcastle United. I think the other thing, by the way, if the player's not cup-tied, is if there's anyone out there that thinks they can win a trophy with Newcastle because they're well on course to reaching Wembley, and that can be used as a factor now as well. But McTominay's one to watch in the long term. I think that Manchester United don't want to let him go in the short term, but that may change come summer. I think Yuri Tielemans remains on the radar, but... Leicester, again, prefer to lose for free and have him keep them up. But let's see whether someone comes in late in the window. Manchester United are there as well. Arsenal have never entirely walked away. And even though it sounds like a broken record, I've said hundreds of times, if one club makes an offer, there'll be a whole domino effect. And we're right at that stage of the window now where we may have an eventuality where one club triggers a variety of clubs to move on Tielemans. But I think that there's a calmness about that I'm just going to call it central midfield because obviously it could be more box to box. It could be attacking midfield or it could be a more old fashioned central midfielder like a Scott McTominay, because I think that they feel over the next, let's say, two years, there's room to strengthen in all those areas. But remember with midfield as well, if they move in that front three to bring in names like Anthony Gordon, there is also the possibility for Joe Linton to drop deeper again because he can actually play in that position as well. So Eddie Howe does have in-house options as well, which is why I don't think there'll necessarily be as much urgency as it appears at this late stage of the window because Newcastle might choose to just stick with what they've got, continue with the momentum, know they've got a few versatile players. If nothing becomes available late in the market at value, then we'll see them resolve the midfield situation come summer instead. Uh, well, for those of you who uh, would think that maybe Madison might not start today because he's got a move coming, well, sorry to disappoint you. Madison is starting for Leicester today um, in, in their FA Cup game. So, uh, yeah, that one, we'll, we'll park that one and we'll see what happens. But uh, there's going to be more names bandied around. I guess the other one is is ultimately ESM. I mean, you know, somebody's put in the chat there, is this ESM's nose out of joint? Um, links with AC Milan, Ben. You know, you know, you you have some good European contacts as well. Is 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 ESM out of the club at this moment in time? Something that Eddie Howe would be looking to do? Do you think, or do you think that's more one for the summer? Again, there's so limited time left, and it's a very complicated transfer. But it can't be ruled out just because Newcastle are still trying to, I guess, resolve the outgoing situation. And most of the outgoings that we've spoken about over the last few weeks are at a lower level in terms of any fee that could be commanded. And also perhaps players dropping down, particularly regarding the goalkeeper situation anyway. Whereas I think with ASM, were Newcastle to entertain an exit, they would still want to get value out of that. And that's kind of the challenge at the moment. So I think that it probably is more one for the summer. I would personally be surprised if he ends up leaving before then. And despite the fact that there is interested clubs, I just think that to resolve this in the next few days and over a weekend when teams are playing is going to be very tricky indeed. So when people sort of say no's out of joint, it's obvious that he's not as involved or playing as much as he would have liked. And that's part of the momentum at the moment that Eddie Howe's been able to build, you know, starting 11 picks itself and players just have to accept that sometimes. It was again the same when Leicester won the Premier League. There were players that were on the peripheries that perhaps did earn a shot. But 
if you're winning, if you're playing well, if you're keeping clean sheets at the back and if you're scoring goals at the other end, who are you going to drop? And I think that's the thing. If everyone makes their starting 11 based on form at the moment and assuming everyone's fit, is he really in there? And, you know, maybe the only caveat to that is just the fact that ASM actually started the season quite well. I can't remember exactly what the stats were, but I remember him scoring a few goals, getting an assist in the early part of the season. And then from there, he just sort of disappeared. And maybe therefore in the player's mind, there's a slight gripe when fit that there isn't more minutes. But I don't think there's too much in the Milan link specifically because they don't really have the budget and the money. And they're looking at lots of different players, Milan as well. But coming back to what I said before, they tried for Ziyech over the summer. They also made an inquiry in early January and they were like, yikes, you want over 20, 25 million and the wages are high. And again, for ASM, Newcastle are not going to do a cut price deal. And I would imagine in any move, especially if he went to a club playing Champions League football, that the wages again would be relatively high. So it's going to be challenging to have him leave the football club, I think, now. But there's definitely clubs that see a bit of a window of opportunity for the summer, for sure. Roger Cook says, I read a Swedish guy's thread about our forecasted financial situation in the next year. And with 30 million Saudi sponsorship, we'll, it, we'll be able to afford three and a half Isaacs. Do you agree, Ben? <laughs> well, I mean, the sponsorship's a big part, of course. And I think we're going to have a lot of movement. And you can understand why they're keeping things in their back pocket for as or when they reach the Champions League because imagine the position the club's in negotiating now with a view to the Champions League if they'd have done the sponsorship too early in the last off-season the sponsors would have maybe got a fantastic deal and now Newcastle are going to be able to cash in from their momentum and you're always talking to different sponsors so we're not only discussing long-term shirt sponsor or any advertising around the stadium or any potential naming rights that is also potentially new areas and the Saudi equivalent of Amazon we know now is on the Newcastle United sleeve. And over time, I think you'll see football develop into shirts that have other areas. And it's interesting in the last 10 years with sponsorship, we're starting to see shorts sometimes being sponsored. We're starting to see things creep onto the back of shirts as well. And that's a bit like F1. If you look at an F1 kit, they're everywhere. I don't think that football will quite go down that line, but it's certainly interesting if you look at Al Nasser their shirts have got three or four. And then as ever in football, you've got training tops, you've got leisure wear, you've got non-playing apparel. And this, I think, is where, particularly in the Middle East and North Africa, we're going to see Newcastle make moves. And if they do so, that will obviously help. In addition to that, though, we should make a few things very clear that it's not only about sponsorship versus what Newcastle can spend. They can spend already now far more than just three Alexander Isaacs, to be perfectly honest with you. There's probably 600 million or more available now. And I would call it 800 million if they reach the Champions League. But, and before I'm misquoted on this, because it will be on Twitter that Ben Jacobs says Newcastle have got a budget of 800 million to spend, that is over at a maximum, a full cycle of financial fair play which is basically three or four windows. And therefore, you're looking at comfortably being able to spend around 
200 million per window over four consecutive windows before it really catches up on you, providing, and this is key, that after that, you either choose not to spend too much or anything, or you bring in a big sale or you bring in a big sponsor. And this is really important. So when people hear Eddie Howe say that financial fair play is tight, it's not actually tight now. If they really wanted to make a signing, they could. It's not tight next summer. But Eddie Howe's point is if they spend that 800 million in one or two windows instead of allocate it over four or five windows, then they become restricted. So it's about balancing the money within a financial fair play cycle over all of the windows and ultimately projecting where you might be in terms of the wage bill increases, the bonus increases, if you don't make Champions League football. So I think that every window someone says, how much are Newcastle going to spend? And I'm always reticent to put a specific number on it because we're actually looking at that budget across an entire cycle of financial fair play. And within the context of Newcastle's strategy, what they might bring in, how success may influence things. But outgoings are really important here as well, because when you sign a player, you offset that fee against the length of the contract purely for accounting purposes. So if the fee is paid in a lump sum like Anthony Gordon, that is an operational headache because no club really wants to just dig in and pay 40 million. But it's not a financial fair play headache in the sense that that fee is still divided on the books over the length of contract. However, what becomes problematic over time is if you keep dividing the fee by the length of contract, you're stuck with these little incrementals that never really go away on your books across the cycle. So it's all very well Chelsea saying, but Mudrick's only 9 million a year. But if you sign seven at 9 million a year, you're stuck with that annual outlay on your books. And then the advantage of outgoings, which is why they're so important, is that they on the books are an instant lump sum. So if you sign Gordon and you divide it by contract length, that's a year-on-year -year outlay. If you sell Gordon for 40 million, like Everton, they immediately, this year, this cycle, in one year, can put all 40 million, even if it's paid in 100 installments, they can list all 40 million as one payment of incoming profit to sort of clear their books. So with Financial Fair Play in Newcastle, the more they spend, the more immediate they have to be with their success and ambition because it will catch up with them in four or five windows time. But also the more they need to generate income that they can just put on the books instantly to offset any spending. So academy sales, player sales, sponsorship sales, and so on. And this again is why the amount that they get for any new sponsorship, but also the amount that they get for outgoings over time, whether they're young players that don't succeed or whether they're existing players like ASM needs to be more effective and higher in order to offset future spending or to give them more leeway to spend bigger. Yeah, it's uh, a lot of people asking about Chelsea. I mean, uh, we don't want to take up uh, any of the show talking about them, but yeah, they are going to have issues, I'm sure. Um, you know, there will be ways and means of of changing, you know, your, 
you know, changing changing the way things are, extending you know contracts to seven eight years and stuff. We're seeing that kind of thing going on. There will always be loopholes, but uh, yeah, we, we'll leave that for another day. Um, any are you hearing any whispers about potential sponsors for next year? Adidas. We're at the cup match against Leicester. Um, obviously, we you know we know that the the owners uh, certainly. Uh, some of the owners, uh, Amanda and Miadad, are across in Saudi again. I mean, that could be that could be for any reason, but um, you know, Grand Prix related, or it could be for you know a meeting with PIF with regards to you know what they're going to spend before the end of uh, this transfer window. But yeah, I mean, you know, Adidas would sentiment sentimentality um, is what is pulling Newcastle fans towards that. They'd love to see Adidas back at the club. Yeah, some iconic kits, and that is a very real possibility. I mean, I think the kit supply was always likely to change after Mike Ashley left, so that's one to watch for sure. And I do understand that there's been talks between the club and Adidas. We'll have to wait and see how advanced they are and if anything concrete emerges, but there's a very real possibility of that. The big ones to watch are obviously front-of-shirt sponsors, more stadium sponsorship. I don't think imminently they will necessarily explore naming rights on St. James's Park, although I've been told pretty categorically that if that does escalate, that it will be one of those stadium type namings that allows for the current name to stay within it. So maybe the fear with some fans is that there'll be an Emirates Stadium, Etihad Stadium style naming, like the Saudia Stadium, if it's after the national airline carrier, and maybe that would divide the fan base. But I think that the beauty of having effectively day-to-day -day ownership outside of PIF and the majority ownership from PIF is that they're communicating quite well. And it's very clear that everyone connected with the ownership understands the fabric of the football club. And they're definitely walking before running. And this is kind of what even as a journalist and a non-Newcastle fan, irks me sometimes that Newcastle get a lot of criticism every time they succeed because somehow they've bought their way in. Somehow they're also like Chelsea trying to find a loophole and cheat the system. But fundamentally, in January, they were pretty much rock bottom of the table and they made relatively sensible signings rather than just throwing their checkbook around. And that's all paying off. But they also have a manager in Eddie Howe who's grounded and they have a number of players that were there long before any of that January spending a year ago that have also ultimately found their form. Shares, one good example, Joe Linton reinventing himself over the last kind of 14 to 16 months. And on top of that, we obviously have to look at someone like Callum Wilson when he's fit, who ultimately Eddie Howe knows really well, and Miguel Almiron, who just worked his socks off in preseason to fight his way into the team. And I think before a ball was kicked, you could have made an argument. If someone had come in for Almiron, Newcastle might have considered a sale, but he said, I'm going to keep my head down. I'm going to prove my worth. I'm going to be integral. And he's basically the first name on the team sheet now. So you have to give Newcastle credit on the football side. And that extends to the sponsorship side as well, where they're not just going to sell the soul of the club in terms of naming rights, but there is opportunism there to further connect with the MENA region in particular. So we need to look out for a few things. One is going to be that front of shirt sponsor. The other, I think, is going to be more targeted activations with Saudi Arabia, that might, for example, be something a bit more ingrained within Arabic culture. I've seen one or two clubs before explore things like uh, Arabic Bank, where Barcelona did this in the Middle East. You partner 
because the lending laws are different across the Middle East and North Africa. You do a deal specifically with an Arabic bank and it becomes the kind of favourite bank of that football club and the official outlet. And they sometimes sell a card with like a logo of that football club on it. And Barcelona have explored that. They can cash in by playing friendlies still in the Middle East and North Africa. They can cash in by having an affiliation with soccer schools. They can cash in by having strategic partnerships with clubs in Saudi Arabia. And then in terms of the names, we still know that the national carrier, Saudi Airlines, is one to watch. And of course, they've already been down to Newcastle. On top of that, we should still look out for Aramco, who are affiliated to the Grand Prix as well. And that one's kind of intriguing because if you talk to sources at Aramco, they are very keen to continue their association with sport and they're big sponsors of sport already. But they are ultimately a petroleum and natural gas company. And the whole point of Vision 2030 is to generate sports based business and interest in and outside of Saudi Arabia, not leaning on the gas and petroleum industry. And therefore, if you are factoring in broader PIF strategy and Vision 2030, it might go a little bit against the promotion of that strategy to have Aramco, for example, front of shirt. But it wouldn't remotely surprise me if they were involved in some capacity. And then I still think that there's going to be scope with a lot of these new projects in Saudi Arabia for Newcastle to affiliate themselves with. Neom is one good example. It's a sort of sports super city that's a bit more westernized. It's hosted beach soccer before. It will stage the 2029 Asian Winter Games, which is a big coup for Saudi Arabia to have won. And I think they're going to want promotion over the next few years in some capacity. Visit Saudi, the tourism authority, have obviously signed up Lionel Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo is highly likely to have an affiliation. So they're in the market for some kind of visibility as well. And these are all things to watch. And I think that what has to be understood here, and this is why during the takeover, there was so much contention and so much gray area about who's controlling who. And we're not going to go back into that. But the reason for it, if you move that debate into sponsorship, and it's the same with Qatar, it's the same with Bahrain, it's the same with Kuwait. And to preface this, it's not a criticism either. It's just how that part of the world works. If you're going to do a big sponsorship deal with Newcastle United, there needs to be a, a blessing and a cordiality about the situation. So this isn't Aramco and Saudi uh, Airlines and Neom and the Red Sea Project and anyone else all vying for Newcastle in a sort of competitive tender. This is very much about the strategy of what is best to promote Saudi Arabia, whether in tourism or whether from the private sector. What is best from that perspective within their overall strategy. And this is obviously where an element of government comes in, not directly, but it becomes about each business working out who's credible and who's gonna step forwards. And then to some extent, the other's backing off or going in a slightly different direction. So when you negotiate with the region for sponsorship, you gotta go over there. You've gotta stay over there and be social. You've gotta not only talk about business, and you've got to understand who you can move with and who you can't move with. And therefore, it's a completely different way of doing business. And that's not to say that Newcastle don't have it in their control. And that's not to say that the value of any deal can't be done in a way that Newcastle want. But they may go to Aramco and Aramco may say, listen, uh, we're well aware 
that someone's going to sponsor Newcastle from this region, but it shouldn't be us because we abide by the broad strategy of Vision 2030. And that, again, is where it still all indirectly does come back to government. So it's not really a competition. It's more about what's right for Newcastle on financial terms. And if they do move further into the Saudi market, what is beneficial to that broader Vision 2030 strategy. And that is obviously where uh, there is a much bigger picture at play. But Newcastle knew that when the takeover was getting done. So it's not a criticism. It's not about, okay, is MBS involved? It's not about a contention of what's gone on in the past. But this is, again, why there will always be that constant grey area between what is Newcastle, what is PIF, what is football, what is sponsorship, what is strategy, and what is Saudi Arabian government. And there's bound to be an element of crossover, not because there's influence to stress, but because there is mutually beneficial desire from the public sector and the private sector to all be on the same page, which in many senses makes business a little bit easier. But it also means that, unfortunately for Newcastle, if they do end up with the Saudi Tourism Authority or the Saudi national carrier on their shirt, you have to brace yourself for journalists writing stories, talking about how it's government messaging, talking about how it's sports washing. That is the unfortunate reality of the situation. And as long as we're fair about it and balanced about it, so I'll get accused of kind of waffling, I'll get accused of rambling with an answer like this, but that's the context I'm trying to give you. And I hope that it's been provided in a fair and balanced manner, but this is what is going to dog Newcastle, regardless of how they move forwards. But if they move forwards, winning the League Cup, qualifying for the Champions League and getting a box office sponsor that helps fund the club and balance the books, then I don't think fans will particularly care. Yeah, uh, you never waffle, mate. It's always good to hear uh, your point of view. And uh, that's uh, like we always say, that is why we always like to have you on the show. It gives us a balanced view. And, and as Mitch used to say, Ben keeps her feet on the ground. And, and, I still, and I still think you do. Although Rachel's always very concerned that you don't yeah, take yeah. a breath and something could happen to you, Ben. So, uh, <laughs> Michael, we'll let you have this question, mate. You've took the time to write it. Uh, the question applies to you both. Slightly off transfers. Do you think after investigations on expansion of St. James's Park due to demand for tickets, a new stadium would be the way to go? For the short term, I'd say no, Michael. Um, for the long term, it might have to happen. But at the moment... Are Newcastle really going to fill an 80,000-seater 80, stadium? I, I, I think not uh, on a regular basis. But I think an extra 7,500, see if they fill it, see how many season tickets they can get in. Um, you know, I, I, you know, me and John were talking last night, I think 28,000 28, potentially season ticket holders at the minute. Um, I think from our perspective, Newcastle United will, will outgrow St. James's Park and then... There's going to be a big question asked. But what's, what's your take, Ben? It's difficult, isn't it? Because, as you say, 80,000 every single week feels unlikely at this point. But in three, four, five years' time, it might be if they're automatic Champions League qualifiers and the whole club has changed. And then you look to modernise so you could delay and wait and see what happens and build the momentum and the stability, but have a bit of short-term frustration from fans that perhaps all can't get tickets for the big game mm. and then once you know for sure where the club's model is at you can be more confident in exploring a new stadium that can help modernize the football club but doing that 
means you don't act in the short term. And on top of that, it's always a risk. Look at Everton. Planning a new stadium could go down. I remember when Leicester built the King Power Stadium, they went down and it was a real point of contention. And they went into administration and actually, as Neil Warnock very famously claimed, they were basically able to get a free stadium because they went bankrupt, not paying fully for the King Power Stadium. And then they refounded a company post-bankruptcy who were not liable for some of those costs. So it can be very difficult because by the time your stadium's built, the club can be in a completely different position. Staggered expansion of St. James's Park seems like the most sensible option, but there are problems Fans will know much better than me, but my understanding is, for example, the Lee's Terrace is a grade one listed building, which means it's going to be very difficult to change and alter and expand. So- I've, mentioned it, I've mentioned it on here before. When I was fans, Lee is an officer. Me and David Stone, I was the chief executive. I saw the plans, mate, and, and they could buy it, but it would have to be incorporated into the back of a new stand. So those front entrances to those houses at the back of the uh, at the back of the um the east stand as we call it um essentially would have to be incorporated in any new build and at the time the reason it didn't happen and the reason newcastle didn't do it is because it would have been cheaper to build a new stadium than it would have been to incorporate a listed building within a new stand simple as that really but there, there are plans the club probably still have them Yeah, I mean, there's plans. From what I've seen, they can do a variety of things. One is, believe it or not, they can actually lower the pitch, which creates a little bit more space in order to put more seats in. But it's difficult and problematic to do in that capacity. And if you don't choose staggered redevelopment of your physical stadium and you start working around other parameters around the actual physical stands, then you've got to be able to do that in the off-season or potentially if it takes longer than that, you've got to find somewhere else to play. And therefore, there is a issue around that particular means. Then on top of that, I've sort of seen some plans around kind of hanging decks, particularly the second tiers. I think some people refer to this as the Dresden proposal. Again, you probably, Steve, will know better than me on this one. And that is potentially one possibility. Then with the East Stand, which we've just referenced, they can undertake an environmental impact, which effectively is both a risk assessment, but also a due diligence around what would happen to the surrounding area if they got permission. And as you've outlined already, Steve, there is some cost around that as well. So there's a few different ways of doing it. And really, before I think they look at the architecture and the plans, they need to determine, as you correctly said, Steve, what capacity they want. Is it 3,000 to 7,000 seats? And is that doable just to make sure that they can meet the demand in the short term? Or is it bigger? And if it's bigger, then you start getting into that debate over, are we better off finding a new stadium and staying in St. James's Park until it's built? Or are we better off trying to protect St. James's Park and modernise it? And I think at the back of my mind is still sentiment. And it's not the best way of looking at it because ultimately you've got to modernise a club and in 20 years' time, 30 years' time, as harsh as it sounds, a new generation of Newcastle United fans won't even remember St. James's Park. I met an Atletico Madrid fan only last week and they were telling me how they love the wonder how they toured the wonder how it's the biggest stadium they've ever seen 
And I'm thinking, do you not remember the Calderon? And they'd never been. And it's yeah. the same with the Emirates Stadium now. How many people that are like 16 years of age remember Highbury? But there was outrage at the time when Highbury was going to be replaced because, again, it had that same part of history. There was outrage when the old Wembley was going to be replaced by the new Wembley. So you get this paradox where the current generation of fans are the most vocal ones and they're the decision makers and they're the people going to Newcastle week in, week out. But if you are really cutthroat about it and you say, well, in 10, 15, 20 years, everyone supporting Newcastle won't even be talking about this, then if a modern new stadium is right for the football club, that arguably in the long term is the best option. But St. James's Park for me is different. And I mean, OK, every football fan will say the same thing about their stadium, but it's just the way that it's on a hill overlooking the entire city. And I can't get this image out of my head of it representing the entire city, of it looking down on the entire city, of it being reflective of the culture of all of Newcastle because of its very positioning within the city as well. And therefore, were they to move away from St. James's Park, if they couldn't find somewhere in the heart of the city, reflective of the city, overbearing the city, and still ingrained within the very heart of the culture of the city, I think that would be very uncomfortable for me. But again, if you flash forwards 30 years and then you start speaking to the 18 to 25 year old or the 18 to 40 year old audience that are the core people attending, they may have forgotten about that point. But that's the big sticking point in my head that I'm not even a Newcastle fan and I would feel uncomfortable about any stadium that isn't as geographically ingrained into the culture of the city. As always, great show with Ben. Uh, we've run out of time, sadly. Thanks to all the chatters, all the moderators. Uh, great, great chats and great questions as well. And uh, we will look forward to getting Ben back on tomorrow. I'm back six o'clock tomorrow night with uh, Stu Penman, Neil Mitchell and George Mitchell for the professionals. Until then, take care. Enjoy the day and good luck to Leicester in the FA Cup. Take Thanks, care, sir. Ben. <laughs> See ya.